0: Morning. We normally fill the uh, baptismal yesterday and then heat it up. So uh, when you hear the water running, you know it's ice cold. <laughs> Join me in your Bibles in Luke chapter six. We're just going to look at part of one verse today. I was uh, thumbing through my Bible the other day to see what names the Bible uses describe you and me because we're believers. And here's just a few I came up with. This is not comprehensive, but some of the names are affectionate family names. We're called the beloved of God. Uh, On a vertical scale, we're, we're called the children of God. And then horizontally, we're called brothers and sisters in the family. Some are legal names indicating our standing before God. The Bible says we're chosen which has to do with the fact that we're adopted as his children. The Bible uses the word saints, which is a word that means to be set apart, to be holy, to be righteous. And then there are practical names like Christian. Interestingly, the word Christian is only used three times in the Bible. It's a word that means Christ ones. And the the early church didn't really call themselves Christians. The Bible says they were called Christians the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch we're told in Acts chapter 11 and some suggest that it was probably a derogatory name so what was intended as an insult the early disciples actually took and wore as a badge of honor we are Christ ones and then we're called disciples that is learners or followers so when you put that together I'll speak in the first person. You put yourself into this if you're a believer here this morning. I was just a rebellious, unlovable, lost, sinful person who by God's grace has had a life change and a name change. And I am now God's beloved one. I am now God's chosen one. I am now God's child. I'm Jesus' brother, Peter's brother, John's brother. I am a saint. I am holy and set apart in God's eyes. In fact, I am just as holy as Jesus is in the eyes of God. And I am a disciple following Jesus, growing and changing practically every day so that the world should be looking at me and calling me a Christ one. He looks like Jesus. She looks like Jesus. The whole point of this series is that you and I need to embrace our new names. I am a disciple. You are a disciple. That is not an option. And discipleship is not becoming someone you're not. Discipleship is becoming who you already are. You are God's child. You are chosen. You are beloved. You are holy. Discipleship is just walking practically into who you already are and bringing other people along with you. One of our struggles with discipleship is that we tend to think we've got to live up to the original 12 guys that bore that name, the 12 disciples. And the reason I think that's intimidating is that we tend to think of these individuals as bigger than life, as being from a different dimension, that there was a certain aura about these guys that they walked around with halos on. And I think we promote that by calling them St. Peter, St. Andrew, St. John well you're a saint too I'm Saint Dan you can call me that I had the privilege a few years ago to go to Rome and I went to St. Peter's Basilica and I was rather shocked to stand and there's a statue of Peter there and people line up out the door to walk by the statue of Peter and everyone I saw walk by kissed the foot of the statue To exalt Peter. In fact, if you looked at the foot of Peter, it's half missing because it's been kissed so many times over the centuries. Lifting up Peter to a place that God never intended for him to have in our eyes. But we're intimidated because we see these guys as stained glass figures. They have no faults, they've been canonized and homogenized. You know, we only have to go back to the Bible. shatter that pristine concept and that's what I want to do today come back to the Bible and get a dose of reality in fact for the next few weeks we're going to look at the 12 disciples and kind of at least get a thumbnail sketch of each of these guys to try to see what kind of people Jesus chooses to use one of the things I like to make periodically is a nice meal keyword there is periodically I wouldn't do well on the show chopped that's where they give you you know four chefs and they give you a basket with four ingredients and you have to you have 20 minutes to make it into a fine meal I would have a problem there because I'm too slow and often the ingredients are very weird or very poor my motto in cooking is quality ingredients equal quality outcome So if a recipe calls for ground beef, I use tenderloin. If it calls for margarine, I use butter. If it says use canned corn, I use fresh corn. My motto is quality in, quality out. That's not the motto of discipleship. Because there are no quality ingredients. God opens the basket and inside is rancid meat rotten eggs, spoiled fruit, and decaying vegetables. And he makes a gourmet dinner out of that. Discipleship is about a great and gracious God making something out of nothing. And that will be the recurring theme as we look at the original disciples. This morning, I just want to start by looking at two of them. They were brothers, and they're the first in the list that Luke gives, beginning in verse 14. The first is Simon. He says, Simon, whom he also named Peter. There are four lists of the disciples in the Bible. Simon is always listed first, probably because he was a natural leader. He was certainly the spokesman for the group. He was the son of a man named Jonas, whose name really is equivalent with the Old Testament name you're familiar with, Jonah. Interesting name for a head of a fishing family. Peter was a fisherman. He grew up with his brother Andrew in a village called Bethsaida. They later moved to Capernaum to advance their fishing business. On the side of their boat, it probably says Jonah and sons. We know that Peter was married. In Luke 4, 38, we're told that Jesus healed his mother-in-law. And in 1 Corinthians 9, 5, we're told that his wife was a believer and actually traveled with him in his ministry. I don't know how you envision Peter looking. But Peter was a rugged outdoorsman. He was tanned. He was calloused. I envision him being a big man. He certainly was strong. We know that. Because in John 21, we're told that Six of the disciples were out in a boat and they fished all night and caught nothing. And Jesus showed up on the shore and he said, throw your net on the right side of the boat. And when they did, they caught so many fish, the Bible says they couldn't pull the net up into the boat. Six guys couldn't pull it into the boat. They came to shore... And Jesus said, bring me some fish. And Peter went out and got that net that six men couldn't pick up and put in a boat. And it says he pulled it all the way onto land by himself. So he was a strong man. He was a big man. He was a man's man. His given name was Simon. But Jesus renamed him Peter. Which is the Greek word petros. Which means stone. Today, we would call him Rocky. He's the only person called Peter in the New Testament. And Christ apparently called him by that name to describe his future strength of character. I like that. Because that's what he does with me, and that's what he does with you. I'm sinful by nature, and he calls me holy. I am by nature a child of the devil. And he adopts me and calls me a child of God. I am by nature prone to wonder. And he calls me a follower of Jesus Christ. As Simon, he was just a piece of clay. But Jesus was going to transform him into a rock. And that took some work. Because when I think of Peter, two characteristics stand out. One, he was impulsive, and two, he was inconsistent. That's a bad combination. He was impulsive and inconsistent. First of all, he was impulsive. He was always the first disciple to speak. Here's some quotes from Peter in the Gospels. Explain the parable to us. How many times must I forgive Behold, we have left everything and followed you. What's in it for us? When will these things be? Lord, where are you going? Lord, what about this man? Peter spoke and then thought about it. When Jesus washed the disciples' feet in the upper room, There was silence. I think the disciples were shocked by what he was doing. He went around the table, and he washed each disciple's feet. And there was silence until he got to Peter. And Peter broke that silence and said, Never shall you wash my feet. And Jesus said, Well, if I don't, I have no part with you. And Peter said, In that case, wash my feet, my hands, and my head. In that case, give me a bath. He was impulsive. If you put Peter on a reality TV show, you couldn't film it live. You'd have to have one of those seven-second delays because you never knew what was going to come out of his mouth. If he was on Duck Dynasty, he would be Uncle Cy. When Jesus asked a question, Peter answered Jesus is walking through a crowd in a city and it says the crowd was pressing in on him and Jesus stopped and said, who touched me? And Peter said, what do you mean who touched you? Everybody's touching you. When the disciples were leaving, many of the peripheral disciples were leaving in John chapter 6, Jesus turned to the twelve and said, you will not go away also, will you? And Peter said, where are we going to go? Because you have the words of eternal life. When Jesus said, who do you say that I am? It was Peter who said, you are the Christ. Remember the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus took Peter, James, and John, and he went up on the mountain. The Bible says he went up there to pray. Jesus was praying. You know what the the three were doing? They were doing what they always did when Jesus prayed because they weren't really into prayer. They were into sleep, so they slept. Jesus is praying. They're sleeping. Peter wakes up, and he sees Jesus with Moses and Elijah on the mountain. The Bible says they were having a discussion. In fact, the Gospel of Luke lets us in on what they were talking about. It says they were talking about Jesus' departure. Jesus is on his way to the cross. He's going to go through the cross to the crown. He's going to go through suffering to glory. And he has these two guys there having a discussion. And I take it they were there to encourage Jesus. Because you had Moses who chose to suffer with the people of God. And you had Elijah who was caught up in a whirlwind. One guy who knew about suffering, the other who knew about going into glory. And they're encouraging Jesus. So they're having this discussion about his departure that's about to happen at Jerusalem. He's about to go to the cross and then be ascended into heaven into the glory of God. And Peter wakes up. And Peter interrupts their conversation. To say, it's good for us to be here. It's all about me. I'm glad I'm here. Guys, I'm here. Let's build three tabernacles one for Jesus, one for Moses, one for Elijah. A tabernacle was a tent. Tell you what, let's make some tents and we'll all stay here on the mountaintop. Jesus, Moses, and Elijah are talking about the departure. Peter's talking about let's stay here on earth. And in Mark chapter 9, after Peter said that in verse 5, here's what it says in verse 6. For he did not know what to answer. Love that phrase. When Peter didn't know what to say, he said something. He was impulsive. Not only did he speak impulsively, he acted impulsively. He did things, and then he thought about it. In Matthew chapter 14, Jesus comes walking on the water. What does Peter do? He gets out of the boat, and about halfway to Jesus, it dawns on him that he can't walk on water. He's impulsive. In John 18, we're told that a Roman battalion came into the garden to arrest Jesus. That would be 600 Roman soldiers. What does Peter do? He pulls out his sword. Now, the guy he goes after is called the servant of the high priest, probably one of the few guys there that has no weapon. But he goes after him. Now, I assume he's not—he's a fisherman. I assume he's not good enough to just slice his ear off. I take it he's going to decapitate the guy, and the guy's quicker than Peter, and he ducks, and he takes his ear off. But it's amazing to me that Peter would pull his sword in front of 600 Roman soldiers, impulsively swing it, and not really have a plan for what he's going to do with the rest of them. In John chapter 20, we're told that the disciples heard that Jesus had risen from the dead. And so Peter and John run to the tomb. You would run there too. They run to the tomb to see if it's true. And John, who's writing the gospel, points out that he got there first. He won the race. But he gets there, and he stops outside, and he peers into the tomb. Peter comes running up from behind, never breaks stride, and goes right into the tomb. Why? He's impulsive. In John chapter 21, the disciples are out in a boat. The Bible tells us they were 100 yards from the shore. John leans over to Peter and says, that's Jesus on the shore. And I love what the text says. It says Peter threw himself into the sea. And he swam to shore because he couldn't wait for the boat. He was impulsive. Impulsive. But not only was he impulsive, he was inconsistent. Peter was like a pendulum. One minute he was all in, the next minute he was all out. He was all in, then he was all out. In Mark 8, 29, Jesus asked the disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ. Christ. And if I was paraphrasing it, Jesus would go, Wow, flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you, but my Father in heaven. What I just heard is a God revelation. You are speaking the words of God. Three verses later, he's rebuking Jesus You're the Messiah, but I'm going to correct you. And Jesus says to him, Get behind me, Satan. One minute, Speaking the words of God. The next minute, speaking the words of the devil. In Galatians chapter 2, Peter is in Antioch. And I love this because this is post-Pentecost. This is after the Spirit has come. He is now a preacher. He's in ministry. I can relate to this. He's in Antioch. And he's hanging out with the Gentile believers, and it says he was eating with them. Now, you remember, Peter's the one who got the vision in Acts chapter 10 when the sheep came down from heaven with all kinds of unclean animals on it. And the message to Peter was a dual message. The Gentiles are now welcome into the kingdom of God. And as a footnote, you can eat anything you like. Peter's in Antioch in Galatians chapter 2, hanging out with the Gentiles. And he's now eating bacon and sausage and barbecue pork chops and enjoying all those things he never got to enjoy before. And the Bible says, says some Jews showed up from Jerusalem and Peter backed away from the Gentiles. And Paul says, I had to confront him to his face about his hypocrisy. He's all in with the Gentiles until some Jews show up and then He's all out. He's a pendulum. In Matthew 26, 33, Peter said, Even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. I am all in. That same night, what did he do? He fled with the rest of the disciples. In verse 35, he says, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. I am all in. I would never deny you. What's he do that very night? He denies the Lord three times. He was inconsistent. And I think that's why Jesus called him Peter. Because rock conveys the idea of stability, of someone who's solid, someone who is dependable. And Peter was none of those things. As he walked around with the word with the name Peter, he was a walking contradiction. He was the rock that vacillated back and forth. He was the rock that couldn't be stable. But Jesus called him rock because he knew that by grace that's what he was going to transform Peter into. You know how Jesus did that? He let Peter crash. You let him crash. What eventually happens if you're impulsive and inconsistent? You crash. You fall. You fail. You lose control and veer off the road and you find yourself upside down in the deep weeds. You find yourself regretting what you did. You find yourself discouraged. And that's what happened to Peter. After Peter fled, he was so impulsive that the Bible says he followed Jesus at a distance. He'd been following him for three and a half years. He didn't know what else to do. He didn't really have a plan. He just followed Jesus, but now at a distance. And he shows up in the courtyard where Jesus is on trial. And by the fire in the courtyard, three times he says, I don't know Jesus. I'm not his follower. In fact, the Bible says he did it with oaths and curses. He cursed to make the point that he didn't know Jesus. And the cock crowed. And at that moment, it says he looked in to where Jesus was, and Jesus turned and looked at him, and their eyes met. You don't have to tell me what that look, that look looks like because I've seen it many times myself. Peter turned in his failure and looked at Jesus, and Jesus looked at him, and it says, Peter went out and wept bitterly. At the beginning when Jesus called him, it says Peter dropped his nets and followed Jesus. I think what he was saying was, I'm finished with the fishing business. I'm going to become a fisher of men. I'm going to follow Jesus. In the last chapter of John, chapter 21 and verse 3, Peter says, I'm going fishing again. And I think what he was saying was, I quit. I tried being a disciple and I failed at that. I'm going to go back to what I was good at. And I love what Jesus does. Have you experienced this? Jesus always meets us at our lowest point. After Jesus rose from the dead, the angel at the tomb in Mark 16, 7, told the women, go tell his disciples and Peter. Why did he have to add that? Because at that point, Peter is not really considering himself a disciple anymore. Peter failed. Peter denied three times. He doesn't know if he's qualified to be a disciple anymore. So go tell the disciples and Peter. He's probably off by himself somewhere discouraged. Make sure he knows. You know which disciple Jesus appeared to first? In Luke 24, 34, it says, The Lord has really risen and has appeared to Simon. Simon. 1 Corinthians 15, 5 tells us he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Peter got a personal visit from Jesus after his resurrection, before he appeared to the other twelve, or the other eleven, or the other ten. Why? Jesus shows up to the one who failed him the most. I think that's why the Lord in John 21 gave Peter three chances to say, I love you. Peter kind of got frustrated. He asked him three times, do you love me? Sure. Do you love me? Sure. Do you love me? You know I love you. Why did he have him say it three times? Because three times he he denied him. Three times he said, I don't know Jesus. I'm not a follower of Jesus. Don't want anything to do with Jesus. So Jesus is restoring Peter to let him say, I love you, I love you, I love you. And then right after that, if you're reading in John 21, Jesus tells Peter that he's going to die as a martyr. He says, when you get old, people are going to take you where you don't want to go and they're going to stretch out your hands. And John adds that commentary. He was telling him what, by what kind of death he would glorify God. Would you like to know how you're going to die? I wouldn't. Peter knows he's going to die as a martyr. He says, you're going to die as a martyr for me now. Knowing that's the cost, follow me. The path in following me is a path of suffering into glory. The path you rebuked me for for taking, the path that you interrupted Moses and Elijah and I when we were talking about it, that's the path you're going to go through. You're going to be a martyr. You're going to go to the cross to get to the crown. Now follow me. And you know what Peter says? What about John? Because he's still impulsive. That's his personality. And Jesus said, what I do with John is none of your business. You follow me. In Matthew 16, Jesus gave Peter the keys to the kingdom. What does that mean? What does a key do? It unlocks things. Peter is the one who unlocked the door to the Jews to enter the church in Acts chapter 2 when he preached the gospel and 3,000 people got saved. In Acts chapter 10, Peter is the one who opened the door to the Gentiles to come into the kingdom of God by preaching the gospel in Cornelius' house. He is the prominent figure in the early church. In fact, the first 12 chapters of Acts center around Peter. Jesus made him into a rock, that solid, dependable leader. Historians such as Clement of Alexandria and Eusebius tell us that Peter was put to death along with his wife. And to intensify his agony, they made him watch as they crucified his wife first. Eusebius records that Peter continued to comfort her and encourage her by saying, Remember the Lord, remember the Lord, remember the Lord. And then he pleaded with the soldiers to crucify him upside down because he felt he was unworthy to be crucified in the same manner as his Lord. Remember what Jesus said to Peter before he crashed? Luke twenty-two thirty-one. 31, he said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. He's just going to tear you up. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brother. You're going to crash Satan's going to tear you apart, but I've prayed for you. And when you get turned around and you get restored, I want you to do something. I want you to strengthen your brothers. I want you to use what you've learned by your mistakes to minister to other people. Disciples are made to make disciples. And in Peter's case, he says, I want you to take your failures and the things you've learned in becoming that rock to strengthen others and help them be rocks as well. Peter did that in the early church. In fact, he's still doing that today. Did you know he wrote you and me a letter? It's easy to find because it's called 1 Peter. And I want to read to you how he ends 1 Peter because I can find this rather fascinating. 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter is a letter written to aliens who are scattered. People who feel like they're strangers on this earth and have been persecuted. People who are down and out. People who feel like they're in deep weeds. People who are discouraged. And this is how he ends the letter. Chapter 5, verse 12. Through Silvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him. I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. I love that. He says, I've exhorted you and testified. I have spoken the truth to you, but I have also given you my own testimony of how God's done this in my life. And his message to his brothers and sisters who are struggling is this. Stand firm firm. But don't stand firm in your own strength. Stand firm in what? In the grace of God. I discovered something this week that was fascinating to me. In, in the book of First Peter, Peter uses the word suffering 16 times. And he uses the word glory 16 times. Peter's saying, the path we follow is a path through suffering into glory. And so to follow that path, you need to stand firm, not in you, but in grace. Because that's where the strength comes from. Well, the second individual is Andrew. Andrew. Notice what it says about Andrew. It just says, Andrew, his brother. Andrew was Simon Peter's brother. That's the way he's commonly referred to in Scripture. How would you like to be the guy who is a famous guy's brother? You're always referred to that way. He he lived in the shadow of Peter. Like his brother, he was a fisherman. Like his brother, he grew up in Bethsaida. Like his brother, he lived in Capernaum. Unlike his brother He doesn't seem to be a natural leader. Unlike his brother, he doesn't seem to relish the spotlight. The things that Andrew accomplishes are low-profile, behind-the-scenes things, things that the crowd would not recognize, things that we wouldn't even notice if the Bible didn't point them out. In fact, there's no mention made of Andrew in Matthew, Mark, or Luke, except in the list of the disciples. He really emerges in John's gospel and we see him in three separate incidents and he's always doing the same thing. And I just want to tell you what those were. In John chapter 1, verse 35, it says, John the Baptist saw Jesus and had two of his disciples with him and he said, behold, the Lamb of God. And those two disciples of John left him and followed Jesus. One of those was Andrew. They spent the whole day with Jesus, And after spending the whole day with Jesus, it says this in verse 41. It says, Andrew first found Simon, and then it says this, and brought him to Jesus. Underline that phrase because that's what typified Andrew. He first found Peter and brought him to Jesus. And that word, first found Peter, indicates that he must have found some others too. And kept bringing them to Jesus. Next we see him in John chapter 6, where in verse 5, Jesus turns to the disciples and says, where are we to buy bread that all these may eat? They're out in the wilderness. We said a couple weeks ago there were 20 to 30,000 people there. The Bible tells us he asked this question to test the disciples. And he said, where are we going to buy bread to feed 30,000 people? And Philip speaks up and says, 200 denarii wouldn't feed them with even a little bit for every person. A denarii is a day's wage. So Philip is being logical. He's saying it would take a year's salary, and if we bought that much food, we still wouldn't feed them in such a way that they would be satisfied. What does Andrew do? He finds the only person in the crowd who's got any food. It's a little boy with his little lunch. Five loaves of bread and two fish. And what does he do? He brings him to Jesus. And then we see him a third time in John chapter 12 and verse 20. It says some Gentiles came to Philip and said, We wish to see Jesus. And apparently Philip was confused because he's like, okay, well, I don't know if I should take you to Jesus because we're supposed to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and you're Gentiles, and I'm really not sure what to do with you guys. So instead of taking them to Jesus, he takes them to Andrew. And maybe because he said Andrew was right last time. So I'll take this problem to Andrew. And what does Andrew do? Without hesitation, he takes them to Jesus because that's what he did. Andrew is the kind of guy I think would be pretty likable. He seems rather humble. He didn't mind being behind the scenes. He didn't seem to mind that he wasn't one of the inner three in Jesus' circle. He didn't mind that people were always calling him the brother of Simon Peter. He was humble. He was also one who exercised faith. He brought that little boy to Jesus, obviously thinking Jesus could do something with this. In fact, he comes apologetically. He says, what is this among so many? But I'm going to bring this little boy with his little lunch to Jesus because, hey, Jesus turned water into wine. Maybe he'll do something. He had faith. And then I think he's characterized by openness. He found these Gentiles and he brought them to Jesus. He was way ahead of the other disciples in this area because they were very prejudiced. We'll talk about James and John next week. They're the ones who wanted to bring down fire out of heaven to burn up cities in Samaria. And Andrew's saying, well, come on. You can come to Jesus too. Andrew didn't write an epistle. There's no first and second Andrew. We're not told that he planted a church. He wasn't one of the leading figures in the book of Acts. In fact, you won't even find him mentioned in the book of Acts except in the first chapter when they list the disciples. He was more magnetic than electric. He just met people and brought them to Jesus. Met people and brought them to Jesus. Historians say that Andrew preached in an area down from the Corinthian Gulf called Patras. And the governor's wife there became a believer. The governor, a man by the name of Agitatus was so upset that he demanded that his wife denounce Christ. When she refused, he turned his hostility toward Andrew and had him crucified on an X-shaped cross. X is the official symbol of Scotland today. It's on their flag, and they call it St. Andrew's Cross. Tradition tells us that they didn't nail him to the cross, they tied him to the cross, and so it took several days for him to die. And that during those days of agony, he continued to preach the gospel. He was still trying to bring people to Jesus. Jesus transformed these two brothers from fishermen into fishers of men. There were two means of fishing in that day. You could fish with a net and collect a lot of fish, or you could fish with a pole like Peter did on that occasion when he caught the fish with the coin in its mouth. Jesus turned these two brothers into fishers of men. Peter fished with a net. He preached in Acts chapter 2, and 3,000 people came to know Christ. Andrew preached with a pole. He caught one after one after one and kept bringing them to Jesus day after day after day. We're going to close our service fittingly with communion. We're going to take the bread and the cup and remember what Jesus did for us, remember the cross. As we do today, I've got to believe that some of us here are in the same condition Peter got himself in. You've crashed. You've failed. You're discouraged. You're beat up. You're ready to quit. The answer is always in the cross. Jesus always meets us at the cross. And the message to you and I is stand firm in grace. Grace. Grace is when God gives us what we don't deserve, and that's in the cross. He gave us Jesus, his son. We experience the great exchange. He gets our sin, we get his righteousness. God treated Jesus on the cross as if he lived my life, and he treats me as if I lived Jesus' life. That's not fair, but I'm not complaining. I'm worshiping and thanking the Lord that that's true. And when we come to the cross and remember the cross, that's when we understand what it cost him to rename us as holy as saints, as God's children. Let's examine our hearts this morning and embrace who we are. Because of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the cross. Thank you that Jesus was willing to take our sin, to die in our place, to suffer the death we deserve in order to give us life and to make us holy and to make us saints, to make us your children. And Lord, thank you that that's not something we can do in ourselves. Peter tried that. It's something you do in us by our simple faith, our simple embracing of you and what you've done in our play. It's all about you. It's not us. And, Lord, the beauty of that is that we're left to give you praise and glory today and forever for you doing for us what we could never do for ourselves. And Lord, as we take the bread and the cup in this simple remembrance this morning, I pray that you would transform our hearts and our attitudes and our lives to be those rocks that stand firm in your grace. And we pray it to your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.